during the pandemics, you know, some people got into a sourdough baking rabbit hole and I got into Chinese real gold reserve rabbit hole, right? Nobody has firm, you know, grasp in terms of how much gold China's reserve actually is. One thing we're very clear, China is the largest mining in terms of gold. And also every single month, this is, if you go to Bloomberg Terminal, you can see Central Bank has been very steadily buying gold. So when the digital RMB is launched, China doesn't even need to say this is backed by gold. China maybe just make an announcement and say, oh, by the way, our real gold reserve is actually 4,000 pounds. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a new source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello, and welcome to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Now that the most intense election in living memory has passed, a fractured, bruised, exhausted America is looking to understand the fault lines of its social divisions. Inevitably, that conversation will focus on where people stand on a variety of issues, the economy and jobs, law and order, environmental policies, foreign affairs, and so forth. But there's a big high-level issue that hasn't been on the public's radar, and frankly, I think it should be. It addresses a looming challenge to one of the most important elements of what, until now, has been the United States' unrivaled economic power and influence. I'm talking about the dollar's dominant role as the world's reserve currency, and the fact that China is rapidly advancing a technology that could put that into question. The ramifications of China's Digital Currency Electronic Payments Project, or DCEP, will be profound for pretty much every other economy in the world, but most importantly, for the US. Yet discussions of China's project were more or less absent from all candidate discussions during the campaign, including the Democratic primaries. We know this because Coindesk talked to campaign staff for many of the candidates and pretty much drew a universal blank on that question. One reason for the silence is that not much is known or had been understood about what China is building, at least not in the mainstream. But now, thanks to a far-reaching report by an India-based think tank called Policy 4.0, the world has a better place of what DCEP is all about and why it matters for China and the rest of the world. In this episode, we'll be joined by Tavni Ratna, the lead researcher on that report. She'll address matters such as what the Chinese digital currency project means for China's banks, whether citizens should be worried about invasions of their privacy, the boost it will bring to Chinese industry with its integration into the country's far-reaching digital strategy, and of course, its geopolitical implications. Tavni joins us from Bangalore. We're also welcoming Jennifer Zhu Scott, who is based in Hong Kong. Jen is the executive chair of the Commons Project, a tech-native transnational nonprofit that's focusing on building digital infrastructure as a public good. She is an expert in blockchain, AI, and data ownership, a concept she explains in a TED Talk that I thoroughly recommend. But before we meet Tanvi and Jen, let's say hello again to my co-host, Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. 
So I'm exhausted. <laughs> these, <laughs> these, these two weeks have been intense. I feel like we've packed just an enormous amount of living as a society into this month so far, and I am dying for a break, i got to tell you. <laughs> well, it's certainly been a lot. We had some late night text conversations between the two of us there trying to assess what was going to happen and where the world was going to go and what all of this means in the broader political context. But I am thrilled for one that we are tackling my very favorite topic today, which is China and how China plays into all of this. I couldn't agree more with your opening remarks. We've laughed about how I'm kind of that person on every panel I'm on. He's like, what about China? What about China? Let's talk about China. What's going on with China? For reasons that, frankly, really, I do find somewhat mystifying, this is not the topic of conversation that it should be in political and legal circles. It is sort of relegated to a corner, I would say, of the global crypto awareness. I wouldn't even say that it's top of mind for a lot of Americans or American-based individuals who are deep into the crypto space. I just find that baffling. And I'm really thrilled that we are here today with such distinguished guests to talk this through. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think there is a kind of a myopia on sort of both sides of the kind of conversation around monetary policy and digital currencies. The traditional finance folks will come back to you and say, it's no big deal. It's, or they'll say, we already have digital money in China and anywhere. You've got WePay and Alipay. And why is this different? And then they'll say, there's no reason why any of this would be relevant to the dollar because why would you want a Chinese-backed currency when the dollar is so strong and everything else? And really, as we'll get into the, in this conversation, that's really not the point. And then on the other side, I find the crypto folks, they'll say, oh, it doesn't matter because it's not a blockchain. It's not a real <laughs> blockchain. It's not permissionless and therefore ignore it, which is to say this huge thing that could transform everything, I'm not going to talk about because it doesn't fit some parameter that I think is relevant to talk about. And I just find that astounding. I personally think this is one of the most transformative developments in the world of technology we have seen since the internet. We really, really have to pay attention to it. I'm excited to be talking about it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, I think that one of the things that we did see this election, I think, did prove, uh, at least to me, and this is probably a good as time as any to remind our listeners that, you know, uh, my views expressed here are not the views of any institution I affiliate with that are really my own views. I do feel like what we're seeing is the end of the era of American exceptionalism. Part of the reason I think that many Americans or American-based individuals have not been paying the attention that they should to what's happening in China with DCEP and other innovation, frankly, not just DCEP, beyond DCEP even, is that notion of American exceptionalism, this idea that America cannot fail, America is too big to fail, the dollar will always be the strongest currency in the world, and that kind of sense of inevitability that a lot of Americans have, which is simply not true. I think that COVID response alone, pandemic response alone, has shown the fallibility of leadership and the fallibility of some of our systems. And we've seen other efforts in other parts of the world that have been more successful in things like pandemic response. So I think that we're starting to see a little bit of, are we rearranging deck chairs in the Titanic here? We talk about American politics and focus specifically on things like an election here, uh, when the reality is that when you look at the broader global context, an awful lot of things are happening that are going to come and vector in and surprise a heck of a lot of people. So why don't we uh, use this opportunity to introduce Tanvi Ratna from Policy 4.0. Tanvi, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I've had a little insight into this report that you guys are producing. In fact, it's a number of reports on the Chinese digital currency. I think pretty clear that this is the deepest dive anyone's done into it. 
Tell us about what you set out to achieve with that report itself. And, and if you don't mind, a very, very high level summary of what you think the implications of it. Yeah, thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. The purpose of this report, the purpose also of our organization sort of links to what Sheila was saying earlier, right? It's we are having these very new generation kind of developments, which aren't very well understood in the policy space. And, you know, I come from a policy and an engineering background, and um, I saw this gap very clearly. And the problem is that now technology is not just for the technology ministry, you know, it has very multidisciplinary implications and people need to start understanding it in that multidisciplinary way. And it's not an easy thing to do. That is the sort of mission with which I started Policy 4.0. And this was the first like undertaking that we took. So we are engineers, lawyers, economists, finance professionals, policy professionals, trying to work on problems collectively, right? And we really saw this development very early on. Like I've been tracking it for almost two years. And, you know, it's it's been on my radar because this was a very big thing happening very quietly. I think it was designed to be that way. There wasn't supposed to be much noise about it. That was very integral, I think, to the success of this uh, project. In terms of what we've done, I mean, we started by looking at the architecture. I mean, this is the first full retail CBDC system in the world, right? Like uh, now we have Bahamas, but in terms of, you know, the design of this thing started like much earlier on. It's a very large scale CBDC. So for us sitting in India, you know, I'm somebody who's worked pretty actively on India's digital transformation. And, you know, we have India Stack and we have Azar and we have UPI. And so India is fairly advanced as a fintech ecosystem. And this was like a curiosity for us, right? Like, why would a country like China, who just like us, has very robust digital payments, instant settlement, instant clearing, peer-to-peer transactions? Why is a country like that setting up a CBDC? Because all the debate right now around CBDC tends to focus mostly on digital payments. And so that was a question with which, you know, we started looking at it. We looked at it from the engineering aspect, we started looking at building out a design and, you know, we spent months on that and we very much reverse engineered the bulk of the system, you know, how the different levels of players are, what's the kind of functionalities that's enabled. And it just blew our mind because the design was so transformative. We understood very quickly that this is going to change a lot of things fundamentally in finance. And so the second part of our report looks at that, you know, what are the major implications for global finance? And there's a lot of implications for the dollar, especially. And then what also became evident is, you know, that this currency is part of an even bigger strategy with blockchain. And so that was the final leg that we sort of analyzed. You know, we put out a four-part report series, which we will launch very soon. And that's a sort of, in a nutshell, what we've done. What I find really interesting about that, this sort of multidisciplinary approach you've taken, as you said, lawyers and engineers and policy experts and the like, as you said, you reverse engineered, you sort of got under the hood, looked at the whole thing, and then that revealed to you all these interesting implications. And I find that a really fascinating way of which, 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 you know, which we hopefully now can advance this conversation. As a bit of a level setter before we get to Jen, 
I want to just get you to talk with one term that comes up a lot when people, I think, who properly understand the significance of, of CBDCs, the central bank digital currencies, and why they differ from, say, WePay or any other current form of online money, use this term. And they talk about programmable money. Can you just like break down what that term means? Because I think it's going to come up in some of our conversation. What do we mean by programmable money? And why is that an important development? Yeah, this is a great point. So I think for a lot of people who are getting initiated into CBDCs, they think it's, oh, it's just a digital form of the money that I have. It's like a node and then it's like a digital version. I mean, this is money that has like a wrapper on it, right? So it is your node, but it is your node plus plus. And that programmability is of many types, right? It could have to do with like lending functions. It can have to do with regulation. One of the most fundamental things about this kind of digital money is it is direct central bank money. So all the other money you have in your wallets and other applications, all of that goes to the same backend. You know, it goes to the same banking system. It goes to the same clearing systems. Only the front end is different. The back end is the same, right? But when it comes to CBDCs, the entire back end is different. Like this is settlement less money, right? And so that has very transformative implications for the speed of digital payment for the kind of players who can be engaged. Yeah. So to kind of get really granular on that, right, I think a way of thinking about this is it's money that's wrapped in basically code that can trigger or signal certain kinds of activities, to give one example. So uh, to tie back to our episode that we had with Jeff and Glenn last week, we talked about taxation. So you actually could queue in or code in uh, taxation triggers into some of this stuff. So your taxes could get automatically paid. It's kind of one example of what it would mean to program money, just for those who aren't familiar with that concept. Now, of course, if you're doing that kind of programming around money, you are collecting data by definition. And so, Jen, I'd love to turn to you uh, to talk a little bit about that. We've spoken a bit about the sheer data play that DCEP represents and that China's experiments with Digital Yuan represent. And I would love to just have you respond to that and give us your thoughts. Thank you, Marco and Sheila, for having me. Oh my God, in the past 10 minutes, I have so much to say, and it's hard to like sitting here. Just, I want to jump in. So let's go back a little bit. You know, Sheila, you talk about this American inevitability in terms of always be the tech leader, right? So that kind of sense of inevitability is basically formed in the past, let's say, 200 years, more specifically post World War II. But China is a country with 4,000 years history related to this financial revolution, the first paper money replacing precious commodity money was actually from China. That was a thousand years ago. There was no America, right? So I think when we talk about digital RMB, it will be useful for the US audience to get out from that kind of slightly narcissistic view in terms of this is about us. So basically China mainly is focused on its own need. In 2014 it started to set up this research institute in PBOC, the initial purpose was really to completely irritate the extreme poverty in China. And that deadline was set by Xi Jinping is actually this year. So it's not because China doesn't have enough money to send to those rural, often have mental or health issues, those families, you know, really on the very bottom line. It's because when central government 
implement something, they rely on local government and all these layers of corruption just symptom of all the aids, right? So central bank and initially 2014 was thinking, how can we send those direct aid to the individual families? And we will be able to track the spending, how much is spending on fertilizer, how much spending on the food. So they will be better understand how they can completely eradicate poverty in China. From there, this has expanded so quickly in the last six years. We talk about this kind of uh, functionality, right? You know, Michael, you were mentioning about the difference between WeChat Pay and Alipay. It's true. China is the largest cashless, large economy in the world, right? In terms of volume, last year's online transaction was 50 trillion US dollars. US was about 600 billion, right? So there's night and day. Putting to a bit of perspective that MasterCard and Visa cards combined global volume was about 15 trillion. And China is growing at an extraordinary pace in terms of the volume, a total volume at such a huge pace already. So there's no way the central bank will allow this very important paradigm shift from paper and plastic money to digital money controlled by two companies, essentially Alibaba and Tencent, a commercial company. And also this process being accelerated by Libra a little bit as well, right? You know, the government realized Actually, to have this kind of monetary sovereignty to really occupy and define the digital space is very, very crucial. So let's come to the functionality of digital RMB probably will be very clear in terms of why this is very different compared to Alipay, WeChat Pay, Venmo, or PayPal, etc. To start with, this is a central bank issue currency. So there is a universal acceptance. If it's WeChat Pay, Alipay, it doesn't matter how pervasive they are. For merchants and individuals to accept, it's a commercial decision. But with DJRMB, everybody has to accept. And then there's a dual offline payment function enabled. So right now, if you go to China, if you use WeChat Pay or Alipay, if your phone's not connected to the internet, you cannot use that. So now with the digital RMB, you can use that even offline. The probably most important part is that WeChat Pay and Alipay, because they are building at the back of the existing monetary system. So they still require an existing Chinese bank account. Without that, it's very difficult to set an account with Alipay or WeChat Pay. That also depends on the business development relationship between you know, those tech companies and the banks, right? But with the digital RMB, the central bank basically say, you know what, no Chinese bank account is required. You just need to download the wallet. Then you will be able to use. Of course, as Sheila has pointed out, because of this programmable nature, payroll is enabled and with the tax code pre-coded into the payroll. This functionality with all the transactions reported also will help the central bank to capture a very large, still nobody know what's the size of the great economy in China. And then last but not the least, of course, there is a function EU's proposing in terms of digital euro also been talking about. This will be very significant for U.S. dollar hedge money, which is direct remittance, right? So direct remittance means effectively bypass the SWIFT system. That will take away and displace a lot of um, this clearing power in New York. That has very, very deep implication. So... From there, you know, combined with this kind of a direct remittance and also programmable and, you know, traceable function, it also helped the Chinese government to reconcile the competing needs between 
internationalize RMB and at the same time have capital control, right? So internationalization of RMB has been a very prolonged effort, but it didn't really go anywhere because they couldn't reconcile how could you want to have very strict capital control and at the same time you also do internationalization of your currency. So with digital RMB, essentially not only you know central government will be able to program right now it's fifty thousand US dollar per person per year going outside of China. So you can program how much of that money can go out from each account, right? And of course, right now, if you travel to Niseko to ski, which you know, I, I do every year, or you go to Paris to go to a luxury door shopping, you increasingly find those shops except WeChat Pay and Alipay. So last year, China had 150 million Chinese people traveling overseas. And that becomes effectively a very powerful army for PBOC to internationalize RMB. As a result, and of course, another part is very important. This announcement hasn't come out yet, but the words I heard need to be verified is that the very ambitious and aggressive goal in terms of a green asset. So Xi Jinping has recently announced that by 2060, China will be completely carbon neutral. And Japan subsequently also announced they will be, by 2050, they will be carbon neutral. I love that in Asia now we have this carbon neutral FOMO, right? The more, the better. I think. The words out is that 2021, the green bond target for China and Belt and Road is 1 trillion euro. That's enormous target to hit. And uh, what I heard is that in a lot of green assets on Belt and Road, now they're already have the digital RMB clause in it, right? So which means a lot of those bilateral infrastructure building or bilateral trade will be used by digital RMB. So what we will see in the very near future is uh, through the you know Chinese people travel overseas and also through this kind of bilateral trade or infrastructure deals that we will see a global ecosystem of people, either you're a Chinese citizen or not, either you're a Chinese company or not, to have this uh, ecosystem that just everybody uses digital RMB, right, without even interact with other currency. So I think that's a few highlights in terms of functionality and uh, where you know China is going with this. So as you can see, it's not all about America or Americans. I think your point is very well taken. That is sort of the point, right? It is not about Americans. And yet the potential disruption to the financial system as we know it, the global financial system, this is going to be the biggest shock to the system that the world has really ever seen. And most people have no idea that it even exists. And so when you think about just to, again, make this very concrete, the American government's attempts to provide stimulus checks during the pandemic you know, to uh, American citizens or individuals here, and how challenging that was, and the amount of fraud that was in that system. We heard about this again in one of our previous episodes. That alone, th- these are things that just wouldn't happen with the kind of direct wallet that you're talking about, which is being deployed now at scale in production in China. Sunvi, I'd love to turn to you a little bit to talk about this some more, because certainly, you know, we can see a path. I hope it's been made really clear from what you and Jen have said already, how this uh, digital RMB might actually become something that is very, that's used globally. So not outside of China, right now, it's been pretty, primarily used within China in these experiments, but you could see how very quickly it could expand to other markets and become something that really could actually quite be quite disruptive to SWIFT and, and other systems of payment. And so one concern a lot of people have about China, of course, 
is anonymity, surveillance, you know, things like this do come up in the kind of imagination of the world when imagining what a Chinese-backed global currency might look like. So I'm curious to hear from you in your report. I know you talk a bit about the anonymity protections that are built into DCEP, and I'd love to get your views on that. This is a question that you'll see also the PBOC is talking about very actively, right? They, they've sort of uh, anticipated this line of questioning. So they have this controllable anonymity structure, right, which has been talked about by them in a lot of forums. And what it's essentially doing is it's creating tiers of access to the data. And these tiers of access, in a way, I think they are quite robust for protecting you against data breaches, like we have seen in the Aadhaar case, you know, there's been many instances now of data breaches, bank account data getting breached. And even though it's not from the Aadhaar system, it's happened through other systems. But what the PBOC has done is sort of encrypted. It's created functions for you to also voluntarily encrypt transactions if you need. And they have created that level of encryption, right? But when it comes to what level of access banks have, what level of access the central bank has, it's a little debatable like whether that is going to be a robust protection. There are some levels of the system which will have very much end-to-end access to your data. Actually, the word central bank used is called controlled anonymity. So basically, they will be able to capture the great economy and, of course, there will be a QIC. The statement they make is that unless there's unusual activity being detected, you will be able to trace, right? Of course, there's intention and there's perception. And the perception is that most of people, let's face it, you know, around the world just don't simply trust China, Chinese government. And also most of people don't really understand the ins and outs of how the technology really works. So I think the reality is that, of course, For individuals, there will be a personal decision to decide if we want to get into the uh, system or not. So in terms of the launch of RMB, this is quite relevant because the most confirmed version of the timing of the launch is the Winter Olympic in 2022 in Beijing. And when there will be a lot of international people come to China, because right now in China, if you don't have Alipay and WeChat Pay, you can't get into a taxi, you can't call a taxi, you can't go to a restaurant. So for people visiting, they will be able to just download the wallet and be able to straight away to use it. For individuals, it's a personal decision. But for corporates and institutes, there's a bit of competing, you know, related to, Sheila, what you were saying early on in terms of how is this going to impact U.S. dollar and, you know, hedge money, right? In addition to what I was talking about in terms of bypass SWIFT, I actually think there's no other entity in this world is damaging U.S. dollars' dominance more than the U.S. government itself. Number one, you know, especially with the current administration, hopefully it's an outgoing administration that completely weaponized the sanction. And that has already been causing a lot of responses around the world, you know, from EU special drawing rights and digital and non-digital response, right? And from uh, Australia, we have Rio Tinto actually issuing bonds in RMB because especially right now with global pandemic and we're going through a recession, for any country kind of factor out China market as part of your economic recovery plan, the recovery plan is not going to be very strong. So you have to do business with China market. But if doing business with China market became 
a potential risk if you become a sanction target. You know, given how much in the past, especially eighteen months, all the you know crazy geopolitics policies goes, then corporates and、uh, institutions will start to consider: Do we now have a kind of a general U.S. dollar risk to be in the U.S. dollar zone? So that's a business decision to make, and it's probably less politics. It's actually a business decision to make. So I think, in terms of U.S. dollar, the weaponizing sanction. And also, U.S. right now, we don't have to remind our audience you know, just how much debt、uh, versus、uh, overall GDP. But the reaction from the Feds is keep printing money. And one element, you know, I've been you know writing about this is that China's gold reserve right now is、uh, less than two thousand tons, and U.S. gold reserve is about eight thousand plus tons. But I think the disclosed amount of the gold reserve in China is. Much lower than actual gold reserve. During the pandemics, you know, some people got into a sourdough baking rabbit hole, and I got into Chinese real gold reserve rabbit hole. Right? Nobody has firm, you know, grasp in terms of how much gold China's reserve actually is. One thing we're very clear: China is the largest mining in terms of gold. And also, every single month, this if you go to Bloomberg Terminal, you can see、uh, Central Bank has been very steadily buying gold. Right? So when the digital RMB is launched, China doesn't even need to say this is backed by gold. China maybe just make announcement and say, "Oh, by the way, our real gold reserve is actually four thousand tons." That would be an interesting call. There's another angle to this, though, that I'd like Tumvi to to weigh in on, and I think that like people focus when they think about the Chinese challenge to the dollar as it being along that more conventional concept of will it replace the dollar. Will it internationalize the Remimbi? I personally feel like that's a much harder thing to stand up because China currently still has capital controls. It is not necessarily going to be a trusted judicial system for all of the legal framework within which an international currency has to operate. But far more interesting to me, and actually the, one of these classic stealth issues that people aren't talking about, Tanvi, is the degree to which, because of its programmability. The Remimbi could, at some sort of interoperable level with other currencies, let's say the Russian ruble, figure out escrow and smart contract structures that essentially remove the exchange risk when two parties are exchanging in their respective currencies, and that that will undermine the dollar because right now the world needs dollars as that intermediating thing. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of interoperability component too? Because I think that's fascinating, and folks don't understand how important that is. Yeah, definitely, and I think this,、uh, as well as I'd like to respond to some things that Jan was saying as well, because I think this all comes into the way monetary management happens. Like Jan was saying, there is this risk that you know businesses might think twice if there are some restrictions around dealing directly with the RMB, right? You know, the biggest, the well-kept secret in finance is you know it's not really any capability as such, which is limiting a switch over to another currency. It's Mostly politics, right? I mean, it's it's mostly politics, geopolitics, the kind of trust structures that already exist in finance. Those are hard to break. Like SWIFT, everybody knows it's an inefficient system, right? Like that's why you have neo banks like Revolut and so many of them that have just made their entire model around inefficiencies in SWIFT. But it's hard to switch out of it because so many billions have been poured into it by not just the U.S. by the whole world. 
it's a very tough thing to sort of make that infrastructure redundant and get out of it. You know, and I think that is where what China is bringing in terms of infrastructure is very relevant, right? Like because it's new infrastructure and what they've been very intelligent about is they've made it cheap infrastructure. So the BSN, if you see, it's cheap, like compared to, you know, other goods. And I think this is where now, you might see a similar story to the way like Chinese goods dominate, right? Because they can be high quality and they can be like cost efficient. I think BSN has done that with like hardware. I think if you look at that versus any other node, like a hyperledger fabric or anything, it's like one third the cost. This is just in terms of infrastructure, you know, the switching costs might be more in terms of opportunity costs for people, right? And that's where the political, legal, system comes into play. And that's where you will see that right now there is a lot of geopolitical pressure against China, right? And that will definitely have its implications. The other thing that um, I just wanted to touch upon was in terms of, you know, what this means for capital controls, what it means for countries switching over. It's not too hard to do that even right now. So I can give you our example in India, you know, we are very much in this, uh, we've been in this geopolitical balancing for like years now. I think we are very adept at it now, but we have, have had traditionally, culturally strong relationships with Iran. It's been like a very old historical, like before there was a Shah or anything. There's so many Parsis in India and it's like a very old cultural tie, right? And we used to deal in oil with Iran, right? And there was a lot of pressure from the US side to like get out of that. And then India starts switching to gold-backed trading. And then they start switching to like rupee-based trading. So this is already happening in many parts of the world, right? Like Russia does it. Europe has its own payment system now, you know, which it uses with Iran. Russia has been denominating outside of like dollars their trade, right? Um, so setting up these bilateral agreements, like this has been in place for a while. On a monetary side, it's not changing so much if you have a tokenized currency to do that, right? Uh, it can make settlement faster, but in terms of the agreements you have to put in place, they're very similar. The real issue, though, comes in terms of managing those reserves, right? So let's say that I have a direct agreement, like Russia and China set up a direct agreement. The real challenge comes in, uh, you know, this is, uh, I'm nerding out here, right? But it comes in uh, something around balance of trade. Like, so you have balance of trade with different countries. And uh, when there's a lot of trade imbalances, you always have to balance out the surplus. And that is a function that typically the dollar has been doing, right? That you need some asset to balance that out. And that's why this is one power of the dollar that will never go away. It's, it's liquidity. The fact that it's available everywhere, it's accepted everywhere, and the Fed allows it to manage, you know, these uh, balances. And this comes back to what Jen was saying about gold, because the Fed doesn't have to back up the dollar, right? <laughs> so a lot of countries like, you know, in India or China, when we issue bank notes, we have to back it up with a bank note reserve. We have to have that even at the central bank level, but the Fed doesn't necessarily need that and it doesn't do that because it has the world like backing up you know <laughs> the dollar and the all the ultimate asset is the dollar so that gives them the flexibility to do that right and i think what jen said about gold is very relevant you know we, russia has been stocking up china has been stocking up 
India is a huge gold lover of a country anyway. Our central bank also recently started stocking up. The thing about China, you know, they're also very strategic about that. I mean, they've actually bought up so many gold mines, which is a very stealth way to acquire uh, gold. And I think uh, what she says about DCEP potentially being the gold-backed stable coin rate is a very big thing. It will definitely have implications. But I mean, let's see. I mean, that monetary shock that you know people are talking about, that's the scenario where this will become very significant. Let's see when or, you know, at what point that plays out and how it unfolds. So you said something in the midst of that, Tanvi, that I thought was interesting where you said like the Fed doesn't have to back its currency. It is just the full faith and credit of the US government. But at the end of the day, and this goes to something Jen was talking about, about, you know, whether the US itself is undermining its own position because of the confidence in it, because that is truly the case right now. It is, it is a unique exorbitant privilege, as they often say, that the US has because of its status in that regard. But I find it fascinating to think that like, like many reserve currencies through history, that can evaporate. And Jen, I think this is an interesting way to confront this question, because if you talk to Christopher Giancarlo, who is, as you probably know, leading the digital dollar project in the US, he says that what the US needs to do now is seize the upper hand in the debate over technology and digital currency technology by sort of affirming the US dollar as a pro-privacy currency, that this is where the Chinese kind of Achilles heel is, that whether or not controllable anonymity is fair or not, there is going to be considerable mistrust in it, and that the US can build trust by probably undoing a lot of the mistrust around its current like sanctions-driven sort of centralized surveillance system and producing a much more privacy-protected thing. There's no real indication that the US government is necessarily going to do that. But I do find it fascinating to think that at this moment, the US could lean into the notion of an open, permissionless, pro-privacy system and regain the upper hand in all this. I'd like to see where you come down on that, because I do think that as much as it doesn't have to back the dollar, there is an open question as to whether one day all of that confidence would disappear from the US and what it would need to do to somehow revive that position. And also, I mean, given how much you're concerned with data ownership and self-sovereignty around data, how real is the concern about the Chinese surveillance state in this whole structure? So two questions there. The US opportunity and should we worry about China? What I'm about to say is completely controversial. You're probably like controversial. Of course, please bring it on. (laughs) You're here for a reason, Jen. We love you. (laughs) I think there's a big gap in terms of how US perceive US itself versus the world perceive the US. In terms of privacy, I mean, you know, do we remember NLSA and uh, Snowden, right? So it's not like, you know, U.S. is not really monitoring and obsessed about surveillance. In fact, I think, Michael, maybe on your Twitter or somewhere I saw for every single government in this world, surveillance is like a drug for them. We had actually had a, an episode a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, Sheila, about the BSA being the unspoken exactly. form of US surveillance like the NSA. So you're absolutely right, right, Jen. It's a matter of yeah. degree. It's a matter exactly. of degree and yeah. political will at any given moment. And also there's a perception, right? And I think Tammy still to the right. I think you know, China doesn't know how to tell the story. Amazing at being strategic, long-term, amazing at implementing policy very effectively, very uh, solid but they just don't know how to tell the story. There's also a big gap between the perception of uh, what China is 
within, you know, Chinese people versus the world see China. I think this gap perhaps is even bigger than the former gap. In China, people are very proud, especially, you know, after this pandemic and see how efficient and effective the government is, right? And um, China's economy is actually growing. You know, you saw a lot of signal optic type of um, events happening, like the, basically all the big fashion brands, they're, because they can't have the Paris Fashion Week. So everything moved to Shanghai, right? Big brands moved to Shanghai. So Chinese people actually live in the moment, you know, feel like the country's really started to do very, very well. And uh, whenever I talk to some of my American friends, some of the you know, American friends feel like, oh, we must liberate Chinese, really <laughs> liberate Chinese people, liberate from what? You know, <laughs> like, so I want to challenge one assumption. A lot of assumptions think, you know, DJRMB, how quickly they can go overseas, how quickly they can be accepted because China still exercises capital control. My controversial and daring bet is that China might relax capital control quite soon. Because once you have the domestic confidence, once you have the traction of China is actually doing well, once you can trace everything, you don't need capital control anymore. So that's a big shift from how people perceive this. This is not setting stone. China will control capital forever, right? So come back to your question about privacy. Again, the assumption is that China is going to be focused on surveillance and therefore there's no data ownership. There's no control. There's no data ownership. PBOC and State Council actually made a very bold move early this year. And this was in March, around March. So the world completely missed because everybody is, you know, busy with pandemic coming to their country. Michael, as you mentioned last year, I was talking about why data ownership, individual data ownership is very, very important for well-being and effectiveness of the digital economy 2.0, right? Especially AI become so pervasive in every single industry. How do we own our data, protect our data? In March this year, uh, the chief researcher of PBOC Digital Currency Research Institute wrote an essay. The essay wrote a very big part was about how do you capture China's great economy and therefore China's greater GDP. The real GDP is actually much larger than what you know they're reporting right now and also will be much more accurate. They know that China's GDP is not accurate, not necessarily they agree, they're lying, but because there are just so many discrepancies between different regions and provinces, and also all this different great economy is not really captured. But then at the end of the essay also talks about data has already been, you know, China, we talk about how just how large the digital payment space is. China is going to also lead in terms of number of the smart EV running around in China. You know, smart highway has already been experimented and piloted in Jiangsu province. Basically, cars, EV can run on a highway and be able to charge on solar. And at the same time, all the data will be, you know, fitting to in terms of weather, traffic and everything. And also after a pandemic, digital health has grown, you know, a couple of digital health companies, their number of inquiries, imagine the base number in China, how big it is, and grow by 30 to 40 times from March to about July. So that's incredible growth. So China is already a country that has enormous amount of data. So in this research paper, the chief researcher, Zhou Zhuoping, he basically said the essence of digital RMB is to build this relationship between 
the economic value of individual's data to the monetary system. When I read that paragraph, I was like, whoa, what's this? And then I thought that was just kind of academic type of um, you know, idea in a very kind of futuristic way. By end of March, a state council issued a policy paper. You know, Sheila, we're talking about, I should probably follow up, write about this for WAP. The policy paper basically for the first time recognized the five key means of production is land, labor, capital, and technology. And the fifth one is data. So State Council of China recognized that data is one of the five key means of production. Combining the central bank's comment and, you know, all the research essays coming out, when the message coming from that level, nothing is accident. It's all very deliberate. Putting all this together, I actually think the most important goal, the ultimate goal for digital RMB, everything else we discussed before was just side effect. The ultimate goal for digital RMB is actually it's China trying to position itself as a data as asset digital economy. And that will completely change the nature of the economy, will completely change the size of the economy will change the individual's relationship with data. It will also change in terms of how China manages its monetary system. The monetary policy will be much more responsive and be able to have a real feedback and dynamic. And surprisingly, China might do better in terms of its monetary policy. So I think this data as asset element is completely missing in most of the discussions about RMB. So as you know, Jen, we've been talking quite a bit about data as an asset at the World Economic Forum. It's something that we are spending a lot of our attention on. And certainly, I think I just want to kind of remind everyone of the context here, right? We are in a world where really the other superpower with the ability to kind of engage in this kind of structured rollout and experimentation is the United States, arguably also India, because of the speed with which they can roll out things like other and the systems they have in place. But neither candidate for U.S. president, this is not on our radar. It's not part of their platforms. It's not something they're thinking about in any way. And not only that, it's not anywhere throughout either of the parties. I know. It's just not on the radar of anyone in the United States who's in a position to kind of make it happen. The disparity in kind of where things are in Asia writ large, specifically in China, versus in Europe and the United States, it is so vast, it is basically insurmountable. And so where I do differ with Christian Carlo, you know, is I think that we have to kind of look at the reality of the political situation, because there is not really political will in any sort of the halls of power to kind of move some of these things forward. Instead, you know, Jen, as you said earlier, we're seeing a situation in which the Fed is, you know, money printer go burr is kind of the response that we're having uh, some of the situations here. And we haven't even begun to talk about the fact that everyone does business with China part of supply chains, right? So we did a big project at the forum talking about supply chains. And I mean, the world supply chains pass through China. Surprise, no big surprise, right? China, Mexico, there are a couple of major jurisdictions that are the anchors for the world's supply chains, regardless of what you're talking about in terms of product. To suddenly disrupt that by refusing to use digital RMB, I mean, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. It's not even a possibility. So the adoption path is already laid out. It's already been created through Chinese investment, through Chinese integration into parts of supply chains and things like this. So it's just a matter of kind of the decision almost to push adoption through some of those mechanisms. But then I'd love to, first of all, get your responses to everything that Jen just said and that's come before, uh, but also to think about what this represents 
you were talking about how it's just this technology frontier. I want to spend a little time on that because certainly the integration of you know blockchain, AI, and machine learning, you know IoT and smart devices, that's really coming together. That's stuff that everyone's been talking about for a few years in technology circles, but it's happening real time on the ground, you know, in production in China. And I'd love for you to explain how exciting that is to us and some of the things of potential that you see there. Yeah, definitely, Sheila. And I think you set the stage very well for what I wanted to say about privacy and, you know, what Jen said. Think about privacy practically, right? And I mean, this is something that I would, you know, recommend for every central bank and, you know, everybody advocating on this issue. Because realistically, I don't think any CBDC in the world will be privacy resilient, you know, because I think that is one of the aims of every central bank putting out this currency. Doesn't matter if they're in Europe or if they're in the US or anywhere is there. You can't do AML KYC practically without that. So there will be levels of access to data. And I think in the privacy realm, it matters for retail users. That's where it matters the most is for just regular, you know, citizens using their money. And that you, you can't dictate terms to China on that. That is their sovereign decision, you know, how they do it. It's, it's a conversation between them and their citizens, right? But when you think about it in this cross-border term, like, let's get real about privacy. Does it even matter? Because when you're talking about trade getting denominated in a digital currency, why does it matter if there's, you know, I mean, the, mostly all those fund flows are tracked. Like, it doesn't matter. They're tracked by international organizations. They're tracked by your bank. There's full disclosure around this money. And privacy is not going to be a feature that suddenly makes everybody, uh, you know, excited. I mean, most fund flows right now are in the dollar. There isn't privacy around it. Let's be practical about it. You know, when you talk about industrial adoption, when you talk about trade adoption, like that's not where privacy comes in. It comes in at the retail level and that's like every region's decision, what they do there. And I think in terms of what Jen said, data as an asset and what Sheila said, I mean, that is exactly it. And I think this data as an asset economy has been enabled already to a very high degree in uh, China, right? And uh, it's not started now with, you know, them thinking about blockchain. If you think about the smart manufacturing revolution that started for years now, you know, Chinese firms have been tagging their machines into IoT devices, right? They've been tagging, they've been doing all sort of image recognition of uh, stocks that are there in warehouses. They've been tagging their machines so they can send out signals on these edge devices. All of this tagging, if you move it to a blockchain, that becomes like the identity layer of an asset economy. And China is already very ahead of this in many countries. I think Germany is also very ahead. If you see in their blockchain strategy, it's very geared to this industrial applications, IoT and blockchain. So I think this level of digital identity is not tapped enough, you know, in the debates that we have. But this is the one that will have more implications. The digital identity of objects, real world assets. This is where, you know, they are very far ahead. And there are specific blockchains, you know, since so there are many consortiums that are already functioning in China, there's specific blockchains built just for this. Like all they're doing is this IoT tagging of digital identity. So the DCEP is the monetary aspect of this whole revolution. And I think, you know, India for due credit has been thinking very actively about data. 
we've been thinking about it for a long time. There's new laws and things around it because India is by default the largest data marketplace, of whether it's Google or Facebook, the most users of all the major, you know, tech firms. And so we've been thinking very critically about data. And, you know, we have now a new consent framework around data, right? But the monetization of data. That's where the CBDCs really come in, right? Like that's where the digital currency really comes in. And like Jen said, that's what will enable the economy around data. What is so important um, because so what happened in India is really interesting, right? So India started to pilot this kind of person-based data management. And it's not about only about your payment or your currency. It could be your health, a lot of your information. Perhaps the elephant in the room is that when it comes to data and when it comes to technology, our choice is between large tech company versus a government. In the new digital economy, where is the third way to basically create this kind of digital infrastructure as public good? That's why I, I got roped in and become executive chair for the Commons Project. What the pandemic has laid bare is that if you want to travel overseas right now, you know, quarantine is a 15th century method. And the reason we have all this fast, te- you know, rapid testing, et cetera. The government cannot recognize each other. It's only because they cannot trust each other because there's no overarching global digital infrastructure that's trusted by anyone, right? Because we gave the option of our data control to either tech company or governments. So the Commons Project kind of start by doing to show, you know what, there's a third way. We as not-for-profit and start to build this common pass will enable people to start travel. And while your personal data is really protected and what China is building, no matter how advanced, it can never travel, truly travel overseas and be accepted by everyone. While Indian building in this person-based kind of uh, Indian stack, it's so interesting. At the same time, Indian stack cannot serve Mexico. So this is the reality of the world. You know, how we go beyond to think about the digital infrastructure not just between the large tech company and the government, is really all of our responsibility to think through that end of the day, not everything that digitalized needs a VC-backed IPO one day, right? Not everything built should be end up in government's control. We need transnational, international digital infrastructure and that's built not for profit. I love that point. And it's actually a really good one for us to round up here on but this concept of transnational and being sort of in some sense removed from those national stacks that are inherently associated with the nation state and the jurisdiction that goes with it brings me to like a question that keeps buzzing around my head every time I have these conversations. And it's like, what does this all mean for something like Bitcoin, which is inherently detached from that national structure? You both described an environment that shows that China is really going to capitalize on this advantage that it already has in terms of industry 4.0 and the data plays that they have and everything else, is that just overwhelmingly too big for something like Bitcoin to be relevant? You know, is there a world within that where something like a Bitcoin, you know, which is a lot of our listeners are into as an alternative for people, how does it fit within this world that you're both describing? Bitcoin needs to define its world. And I think that's something I've been uh, having debates around for a long time is what is the social contract of Bitcoin? Like a nation state has defined what it gives you in exchange for being a citizen. What does Bitcoin give you? And 
if it's not going to adapt to the reality of the world today, then it needs to define what is the reality for which it, it exists. Who is it to do the, do the defining? This is part of the problem, right? Like it doesn't have a definer, but that's, it, I get your point. It's a very, very interesting one, right? What is the social contract? Jen, have you got some thoughts on this? I remain as a big fan of Bitcoin, uh, really start from the beginning. I think Bitcoin will forever remain as inspiration of what does that, you know, transnational decentralized structure looks like, right? Completely departure from, uh, you know, sovereign government. Having said that, I do think I made this argument in 2018 and Davos, but I'm making the same argument now. The entire crypto space needs to move away from how much Bitcoin worth. If you read Satoshi's paper, the value of the Bitcoin is probably the least important thing. Unfortunately, we're all attracted to how, you know, what is the Bitcoin's price right now? I think that's besides the point. The point is that how Bitcoin architecture inspired so many decentralized structure that will make this kind of above government structure possible. I think that's the Bitcoin value. Sheila, why don't you have the last word on that same question? Where does Bitcoin fit into this picture? You know, I've always said, and I still maintain that you have to really look at what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? You know, what is it that Bitcoin does that is unique uh, that other kinds of currencies wouldn't be able to do? We come back over and over again to concepts of censorship resistance, any notion of, you know, forget capital controls, any of the data concerns we might have from any of these governments for any reason, you know, don't really exist in that space, at least not in the same way. I think when you think about some of the inflationary issues that people have been concerned about and how it could be a kind of a hedge against some of that, you know, there's a, there's a uniqueness in a way, at least at the moment, uh, that Bitcoin has. So I think it really depends on like, what is the goal? What are you trying to do? And so my view remains, I think, similar to what you're hearing from Jen and Thunby, which is I don't think it's as essential as they seem to say that Bitcoin carve out its space because I think it's always going to have a space and kind of a niche by virtue of being the first you know, essentially the first cryptocurrency, there is an adoption there that is, that is hard to argue with. But nevertheless, I mean, I think that all of these things are necessary. I think all of these different kinds of digital currencies are making up a new economic landscape and creating a new financial ecosystem that my hope is, is going to move us towards a world that is much more inclusive, allows us to engage in peer-to-peer transactions where that is going to provide social value, not just for the, the heck of it, but where that's actually going to add value to our economy, to our society, to our relationships. And I think we're going to see a world in which each of these different opportunities provides different uh, levers and mechanisms into that new environment that I hope, you know, lead us to um, positive change. All right. On that note, and it's a, it's, a, it's a great one to end on, I think just this prospect of diversity and a multiple of choices, it does mean that, you know, this is an exciting era. I think we can all agree on that, that there's certainly so much opens itself to many more questions in many respects as to where this is all going to go. Jen Zhu Scott, thank you so much. Tanvi Ratner, thank you so much. And Sheila Warren, once again, as always, thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, Jen Zhu Scott, and Tanvi Ratna. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced, edited, and announced by Adam B. Levine. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned to the next episode of Money Reimagined, where we'll zoom in on developments in Africa and South America, where cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin, changes the game, offering both advantages and some unique challenges, plus more insightful shows on the Coindesk Report subscriber feed. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave a review on your favorite podcast player. 
From all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.